I have gotten the response before from people from the ages of early teenagers all the way through some very elderly folks, and I asked them, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And many of different ages have given the name of the book from which we read a few moments ago, just three verses, the book of Job. That story, the book of Job, is used and has been used to teach, to comfort for many, many ages. And sometimes the book of Job is difficult for us. If you're like me, I'm not a poetry person all that well. And so once the speeches begin in what we know as chapter 4 and go all the way through the vast majority of the book, it's written in a language that's difficult for us, the poetic language. But it's still an amazing, amazing account. And no matter whether we get caught in some of the poetry and try to figure out every last little bit of meaning and we maybe get lost a little bit here and there, it still is an amazing account from Job's fall at the beginning through his restoration by God at the end. It's one that is filled with emotion. And for the vast majority of the 42 chapters of this book, we have speeches, commentators would call them the cycles of speeches, where Job speaks and then one of the friends, Eliphaz, speaks, and then Job speaks and another friend, Bildad, speaks, and then Job speaks and another friend speaks, so far. And at the end, this fourth friend comes in, Elihu, but back and forth they go, or really round and round they go, chapter after chapter after chapter. They go around. And these friends, especially the three that we know from the very beginning of the book, were holding to a very commonly held idea in that ancient world. And by the way, it seems as though Job himself, at least at the beginning, held to it. Scholars call it retribution theory. And basically the idea was this. If you were being punished, you were getting what you deserved. If you were being blessed, you were getting what you deserved. In other words, if you were being righteous, that God, or according to some people, the gods in that ancient world, would bless you in certain ways. But if you did evil, then you would be cursed or punished in certain ways. And the extent of blessing that you had showed how righteous you were, and the extent of punishment you were receiving or cursing you were receiving in their mind, showed the depth of sin that you had committed. And so we often see these three friends. And we read through the book of Job, we see that they hold to that theory. And whether we get to understand every last phrase, every last sentence they ever say, it's, it's impossible to miss that that's what they are trying to get Job to do. Job, you must have done something. In fact, you must have done something incredibly wrong. For all of this to come to you, and for all of this to come to you in such short order, you must have done something amazingly wrong. And Job, why don't you just admit it? And for chapter after chapter after chapter, Job basically says, if I've done anything wrong, I don't know what it is. I haven't done anything to deserve this for sure. Job was an amazing individual. In fact, most of us, at least can summarize the opening part of the book. But if you're in the book of Job, I want to read the first couple of verses with you to remind us and keep in mind the way these people thought. That if you were blessed, you must have been blessed because you were righteous. And notice how we're introduced to this man in Job 1, beginning in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away or shunned evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. 
Now we know the figures. We know the facts. Here he was, ten children, all these animals, thousands of them, probably telling us the type of business he was in. He probably led not only livestock businesses, but let's be honest, who needs 3,000 camels? And so what probably you have here is a case of a man who ran some sort of moving or travel agency. People came to rent or buy camels from him to go travel elsewhere, to move things elsewhere. He was a very, very wealthy man. And then, of course, everything is taken away from him because of this cosmic conversation. The conversation between God and Satan, the accuser. I don't know I'll ever be called the greatest man in, name a particular region, or state, or country. Job was called that. And sometimes when I read this account with all the stuff that he had, thousands upon thousands of things, it's somewhat hard to relate. And I don't want to take away from the story tonight, but I want to ask this. If those numbers were drastically different, if it were one child instead of ten, if it were just a handful of animals instead of the thousands, and yet all of it was taken away without explanation, would that really change the story in its essence? Not really. Because Job still does not know why all of this has happened. And enter three friends. You've probably heard it said before that the friends got it right until they opened their mouths. Because as soon as they start speaking, they start accusing Job of everything. But tonight I want to stay away from that, not because it didn't happen, because I want us to see tonight some things that these friends got right at the beginning. Some things they did that really had to, in the first, uh, in the first time that they're with Job, bring him some level of comfort and help. And the reason is this. As God's people, we are called in the New Testament to be people who bring comfort. To be people who try to help those. And sometimes we just don't know what to do. And I think sometimes we can look at negative examples and take away, well, here's what not to do. But I want us to look at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And I want us to see that at the beginning, they got some things right. And there's some things that every one of us can do when we also need to comfort others. Number one, I want you to notice very simply, they were present. They were there. How often have you heard someone who suffered? And they talked about someone, and when they talked about that person, their entire comment was, he was there for me. Or she was there for me. Or that family was there for me. That's an amazing compliment. As simple as those words are, it really is comforting to that family or that person. There's been a phrase being thrown around lately in a lot of Christian writings that I think is very good. The phrase is the ministry of presence. That's a really good way of wording it. Because there really is a ministry, a serving, if you will, just by being there. Consider this. We do not know how many extended family members, how many business associates, how many other friends Job had. And yet three showed up. Which, by the way, adds to the tragedy of the story, if you really stop and think about it. How many didn't show up? But the simple fact that these three show up gives a great deal about their character in the beginning. But look at the verses we read a few moments ago in Job chapter 2. And think about the fact that it took some effort for them to come. We're given their names in verse 11. We're also given their clan or their location. And verse 11 of Job 2 tells us that each came from his own place. They worked together to come. 
And it took effort when they came, but notice we're told, when they heard of all this evil that had come upon Job. We don't know how long it was because of the times in which they lived, the lack of technology of the times in which they lived. We don't know how long it was between when all this befell Job and when his friends even so much as heard about it, much less when they came. But the text here seems to indicate that as soon as they got the news, they at least began making preparations. And as quickly as they possibly could, each of the three made a trip, made a trek to come see their friend. Sometimes the best thing we can do is just show up. Probably each one of us has been on the loss end at the funeral home. In other words, we've been in that receiving line, standing by a casket or maybe just standing in line as people file through. And we may not remember much of what people said, We may not even remember every single face that comes by, especially if a large number of people come by. But there is something to be said for simply knowing that people came by. That people just stopped by to to hug or to say a kind word or whatever it was. But it doesn't have to be something along those lines. It can be any kind of hurt, any kind of loss. It might even be someone who has fallen fallen into a, a sinful lifestyle. Sometimes someone just showing up is enough to at least begin the process of healing, or in the case of a sinful activity, the process of restoration, to begin their walk back towards the Lord. There's no way every single person can be around every single other person who ever hurts, but our heart must always be willing to be there if we possibly can. One of the blessings of having a Christian family is that there are so many who have the opportunity just to show up. Job's friends at least got that right, that they were present. Number two, I would suggest to you that what they got right was at the beginning, they had the right purpose. The end of verse 11 gives us why they came. They came to show him, to show Job sympathy and comfort him. And of course, the problems arise when they change from that purpose. When they start speaking and they change from showing sympathy and comfort to becoming accusatory to the point that later in the book, Job will call them miserable comforters. They didn't quite get it right, but at least they had the purpose right at the start. They had the right purpose for coming to make this journey to their friend. They came to offer him sympathy, to provide whatever comfort. We'll look at what those words mean in just just a moment. But to do whatever they could in that way. I think it's significant the Bible lists for us that that was their purpose in coming. And the reason I say that is, sometimes we may be present, but we need to check our motives at the door. We need to make sure we know why we are present. It could be that I show up in someone's life when they're hurting because I want people to think I'm something great instead of being there with a heart willing to help, I need to make sure that's my reason. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're reminded that God does this for us. And because God does it for us, we should do it for others as well. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why? so that we also may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Notice why they came, the twofold purpose. It's interesting the words that are chosen. First, the Bible tells us that that the friends came to show sympathy. The King James Version has that they came to mourn with Him, M-O-U-R-N. But the idea behind this word really is more our thinking of the word sympathy. The reason is that the original Hebrew word here literally meant an inner grief. 
In fact, it was a word, it's kind of an odd thought, but it's actually a word that meant an inner movement. That there was a movement within them that led to a feeling that was without. And often then, that was expressed outwardly. You may have noticed in the English Standard Version and some other translations, it has that they uh, sympathized with, or or they uh, sympathized Him. There was an outward side to it. But it began within. But that's why the King James chose mourn, because this inner movement would show itself outwardly. The friends were coming to show the grief that they had in order uh, for their friend. But I doubt it stayed inside. They probably came out in tears in mourning, and that's quite all right. We never need to forget that it's okay to cry with people. But it begins within ourselves. It doesn't need to be forced in any way, but it needs to be a natural outgrowth of the sympathy that we feel. But we're also told they came to give Him comfort or to comfort Him That is a very powerful word in the original language because it can be used in two different ways. It can be used in one sense to mean to repent, but that's not the sense in which it's used here, obviously. Here it's the use of a word that means to show consolation, to show compassion. It's the idea, literally, of suffering with another, of trying to lend whatever help you can to someone else who is hurting in a time of difficulty. They came to show the inward, the sympathy, and to lend a hand of comfort. It was an inward and an outward process. When we show up for someone, when we're with someone who is hurting, let's check our motives. Why are we there? Let's make sure that we're there for the right purpose, to show the sympathy, the love, the comfort that we possibly can. And number three, What Job's friends got right, at least at the beginning, they stayed silent. Have you ever found verse 13 to be just a little bit odd? That they sit for seven days and seven nights and nobody says anything. If I was right, that was seven seconds. Anybody think it felt awkward? It felt pretty awkward to me. Can you imagine seven days where nobody says anything? There may be something not hidden in that, but something deep behind that. There are some scholars who suggest that in the ancient cultures, when someone was grieving, especially grieving the loss of a loved one, that real friends would come and be in silence for three days. But if someone was royalty, you were quiet for seven. Now this is not saying that Job was some type of king or prince or anything along those lines. What it may mean is simply this. These friends knew that Job was not royalty, but they were treating him royally. They were treating him as someone who was great, at least in their eyes. And so they sat in total silence For seven days. Whatever the meaning is, whether it was because they were treating him royally or whether they were just waiting for him to speak first, we don't know. Whatever the case was, they sat for a week not saying anything. But when the friends open their mouth, everything goes downhill. Instead of but instead, when they were keeping their silence, they were doing just what their friend needed in the moment. One of the greatest fears I hear people say, and I've said it as well in different times. As we know someone is hurting, 
We know someone's going through a difficult time, and we know we need to be there in some way, but we often do say this, I just don't know what to say. I dare say everyone in this room has either said or thought that at some point, depending on a particular situation. I just don't know what to say. And there are some people who do seem to have just a natural gift. No matter what the situation, they walk up to any situation and say something, and the person it just seems to be more comfortable. I, I wish I had that gift. I don't. I'm amazed at people who do. But because there are people who have that gift, it makes the rest of us feel like, I, I just don't, I don't need to go because I don't know what I would say. Sometimes the best thing to say is absolutely nothing. And just to be there. Just to be present. Just to give a hug. Just to let someone cry. Just to listen. And just being present speaks volumes. Even if you never open your mouth. Warren Wearsby, when he was writing about this section of Job, where the friends say nothing, and then when they begin to speak, I want you to listen to what he wrote. He said the best way to help people who are hurting is just to be with them, saying little or nothing, and letting them know you care. Don't try to explain everything. Explanations never heal a broken heart. If his friends had listened to him, accepted his feelings, and not argued with him, they would have helped him greatly. But they chose to be prosecuting attorneys instead of his witnesses. I think that's a brilliant word picture that he throws at the end. But did you notice what he said? Explanations never heal a broken heart. That's a profound statement. And I would also add this. For those of us who are Christians, if we're going to try to say something, if we decide to actually speak up, and we're going to, we're going to say something from Scripture, we need to be extra doubly careful that what we say is true in context with Scripture. Because if we're trying to help someone come to the Bible and we say, let me give you a verse, that's great, that's wonderful. But what if later that person comes back and finds we've taken that verse out of context or just lifted something that's in a much different context? We can do more harm than good if we're not careful. It's not because we didn't mean well. We must be very careful. Sometimes we need just to say absolutely nothing. I want to read one more thing to you on, the, on this point. It's from a biography of Job written by a particular scholar. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want you to hear it. He said, the moment we find ourselves in trouble of any kind, sick in the hospital, bereaved by a friend's death, dismissed from a job or relationship, depressed or bewildered, people start showing up, telling us exactly what is wrong with us and what we must do to get better. Sufferers attract fixers the way roadkill attracts vultures. At first, we are impressed that they bother with us and are amazed at their facility of answers. They know so much. How do they get to be such experts in living? But more often than not, these people use the Word of God frequently, but loosely. They are full of spiritual diagnoses and prescriptions. It all sounds so hopeful. But then we begin to wonder, why is it that for all their apparent compassion, we feel worse instead of better after they've said their peace? I would offer this suggestion. If you don't know what to say, just offer a hug. Just be present. Just listen. Don't you wish the book of Job ended right there? That, his friends, that the, whole, the whole point of the book was not that Job suffered, but that when Job suffered, that this is a book about friendship. And these friends just came, they sat, they, they treated him the way he needed to be treated. End of the book of Job. That would be a great way for the book to end. And it would be so helpful. But when they open their mouth, things go downhill. 
Joe and Mary Lou Bailey were a couple that lost three children. One was lost after a surgery when a baby was just 18 days old. Then a little while later, they lost another child, another boy, when he was just five years old. They lost him to leukemia. And finally, they lost a third son at the age of 18 following an accident sledding. But out of their grief of losing three sons, Joe, the husband, wrote a book. He originally titled the book, The View from a Hearse. But knowing that book, that that title probably would not sell too well, the publisher renamed it, The Last Thing We Talk About. Some of you may have read it. I want you to listen to one story from his book. He said, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except I wished he'd go away. And he finally did. Another came and just sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened to when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. And I hated to see him go. I know a lesson like this one tonight is not one that is typically lends itself that well to an invitation. But it's one that I hope all of us find practical because we live in a world where people are hurting. And as God's people, we need to be willing to be present. We need to be willing to step in when others are hurting. I know that for the vast majority of the book of Job, his friends got basically everything wrong. But at least here at the start, they got it right. And we can learn some things from them to be present and to make sure that we are willing to offer words when we do speak that are comforting. But sometimes just to say nothing. And be the comfort that everyone needs. And I want you to think. The things we have talked about tonight. Really in many ways parallel or at least picture. What God does for us. Is not God always present with us? He has promised us no matter what we are going to going through. If we are faithful that He will be with us. Doesn't God always have the right purpose? His purpose for our lives. Is that we make sure that we live faithfully to Him. To His glory. And the ultimate purpose is to go to heaven. And you may say, wait a minute, that's going to be hard to make a picture of that third point because God does not stay silent. No. But think of how much God could say. And yet all He has given us is one simple book. That's enough. He gives us everything we need and no more. And it's enough. You see, He is the God of all comfort. And He provides His children comfort. And so tonight I simply ask, are you one of His children? If not, we invite you to come as we stand and sing to encourage.